You're listening to the Digital Forensics Files podcast with your host, Tyler Hatch from DFI Forensics. Are you a lawyer who wants to learn about how you can use digital forensics in your modern day lawsuit? Great. Go to dfiforensics.ca to learn more. If you have questions about your particular case, we'd love to hear from you. Consultations are always free, so email us or call us today. Hello and welcome to the Digital Forensics Files podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Hatch from DFI Forensics. Today, I've got a really great guest here joining me. I've got uh, Patrick Eller. He is the CEO of Metadata Forensics. You're based out of Richmond, Virginia, Patrick. Thanks for taking the time to uh, join me today. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Tyler? I'm doing great, man. Thanks very much. Good day out here. We're up here in Canada. The sun's shining. Uh, there's not a lot to complain about, so I'm pretty happy. But uh, yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. So again, thanks for taking the time. Of um, course. Let me just start by you know asking you a bit of a question. I, I always have a, you know, people when I meet them and tell them what I do, it's always difficult for them to understand exactly what the field is. How do you describe the field of digital forensics when you talk to people? Like so it's it's interesting that uh, you asked that question. I was just explaining to a grad student uh, in one of my classes who's a paralegal that was talking about the overwhelming amount of digital evidence that she was experiencing as a paralegal, but that turned her on to the digital forensics field, which is why she's going back to school to get her degree in digital forensics. And I was explaining that I've spent the last few years teaching a lot of attorneys and teaching a lot of paralegals and law enforcement about what digital forensics a actually is and B the even just the ground level for them to be able to understand it going back to the basics and so when I'm when I'm explaining it to them uh, I just talk about the artifacts I talk about the devices but more so I talk about the validation of it too mm -hmm. and, and I really think that that is more important now than ever because they understand that a phone, creates text messages. They understand that you can take pictures with it, but they don't understand any of the data behind it. They don't understand if it's accurate or not. They don't understand if it was actually created by the device they think it was created by. So it's, you know, getting them into the little bit more technical understanding that needs to be understood in order to use it in court. Yeah, that's interesting. I agree. That's, that's actually, you nailed the issue right on the head of, in terms of what they're confused about and what, where they lack the understanding. And for some reason, I find the legal community, they will retain any number of different experts in any number of fields and be like, that's, that's an expert in a field. I don't have to know everything that they know. I just need to know that I need to go to somebody who knows what they're talking about. But for some reason with these cell phones and computers, I sense that the lawyers genuinely generally feel like they have to understand it all themselves and they, they don't really. Well, they, they don't, but see, the problem becomes is what side of the bar you're talking about. And I say that and this is something I've really learned in the last couple of years when I started my own company, because prior to that, I was in the government, worked in the military, did digital forensics, did law enforcement, but I primarily worked for the prosecution only. So when I retired and I started my own company and my primary clients coming the door became the other side working for defense, I think a lot of that becomes 
they have to understand it because they're not being given the same resources. They're not being given the same amount of money to spend on a case, mm -hmm. especially uh, public defenders or even in the military side. It's really interesting because on the military side, the defense has to ask the prosecution for the money oh, to hire an expert. Huh. So they, they go and ask a convening authority or the judge to get an expert appointed, but it's the prosecution who argues back saying, well, you should be able to understand this, or you should be able to talk to law enforcement's expert about it. Mm -hmm. But I think that you're, you're instantly talking about potential bias there. You're talking about only one person walking into a courtroom talking about digital artifacts with no authentication, no validation, no independent verification, or the person who's accused of a crime not having someone who's representing solely them looking at the information, mm -hmm. that creates a big problem. I agree. Yeah, it's not only a, a real bias, but it's the appearance of a bias and sure. unfairness. That, yeah, it's kind of like all the resources of the state are stacked up against an accused person who's facing probably very serious charges and very serious jail time or whatever the case may be. So yeah, there should be definitely some more uh, balance there. So I like that. Let me just go back and ask you about your background because it is quite interesting. You've been in the field for a very long time. So I, I always love talking to people like you because you've seen so much change over the years. But tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into the field. Yeah. So interestingly enough, uh, I joined the Army many years ago uh, in 1999. Um, and then I served 20 years in the Army, all law enforcement. Uh, I moved into digital forensics, uh, at least partially, in 2006, 2007 timeframe. And from there, uh, I got into it majority because I was doing a lot of economics crimes cases then. Hmm. That's what it was being used highly in then, as all of the databases and all of the financial information and all of the Army's tracking databases were being switched into fully automated systems. The only way for us to be able to look at that was on a computer. Mm -hmm. And so as we started doing a lot of financial crime information, uh, the natural next step was, okay, how do we look at this information? How do we ensure no one's you know, tampered with it? How do we ensure that it's valid? And so I got into it originally by doing economic crimes, and then it just fostered from there. Um, I've done digital forensics in multiple countries in a war zone, uh, set up a digital forensics lab in Afghanistan, um, during my time. And then my, the end of my career, I was running the digital forensics program for army criminal investigations. And we were building out an entire program, standardizing things, building out labs instead of just individuals placed in one or two locations. Mm -hmm. And so that turned into you know, overseeing 80 examiners across the world uh, when that's I retired. Good for you. And yeah, as a young man, you're still a young man. So that, that's just incredible experience. So, I don't feel young. <laughs> well, you know, that's what the, <laughs> the yeah. of this career will do to you someday, I suppose. But um, yeah, interesting. Wow, that's really good experience. So um, when did metadata forensics come into being and, and why did you start your company? So interestingly enough, I owned the, 
I owned the domain for metadata forensics probably five years before it ever began. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something I always told my examiners that worked uh, for me that I'm going to start my own company. There's a certain way I wanted to do things that I couldn't do when I was working you know, for the government or prosecution only. There was certain research avenues. There was certain teaching avenues, things I wanted to do. And so uh, right as I retired, I was already in. I had it all set up and ready to go. So we are hitting two full years, uh, the end of this month. Congratulations. Um, Yep. And so it was interesting times, though, because standing up a company and then having, you know, the pandemic come along, Mm -hmm. I wasn't really sure how that was going to go. Yeah, there were some Um, very difficult days for me as well. And yeah, I I think I've got a bit of a jump on you by close to a year um, from the sounds of things. And it was still very uncertain how it was all going to go. So I I feel you, man. It's it's not easy. I will say that I probably had about a 45 day where it was just quiet and everyone was trying to figure things out, but then it just opened up wide. And and a lot of that was pivoting though. I went back to the customers. I went back to the clients and said, okay, think about what the courts are going to look like when this is over. Right. And they're going to say, you're not getting a continuance. You had X number of months to work this during this time period. Why didn't you do it then? And why are you coming in asking for an expert now? So I got a lot of my clients and prospective clients to put in their requests during that time. And it gave us a lot of time to focus on cases. It gave us a lot of time to really focus down on data. And I will tell you some of the outcomes of those cases that were done at the beginning of the pandemic that just recently went to court. Because of the amount of time that was able to be spent on the data, it really made a difference. Good for you. That's awesome. Yeah. and that's such a fine line in private practice too, because, um, you know, the budget isn't always there to spend all the time in the world. No. So I, I spend a lot of time up front having conversations with people about what exactly you want done and how much time is going to go into it. Because, you know, it's, it's one thing if they choose not to invest all the time in the world, that's their risk to take. Um, but it's important for me that they understand exactly what needs to go into it to do it right. And if you want to scale back, then then fine. But that's that's your choice, not mine. I'm going to give you all of the options and tell you all of the key things, and and you can make your choice from there. So yeah, yeah, I, I got I got good stories from that, and I, I got some really bad ones, right? And I'm sure you do too. Mm-hmm. Where I explain to a client, here's everything from A to Z that we should do. And they're like, absolutely do all that plus anything else. Okay. And then I have the client that says, Hey, I just need you to look at this one device. (laughs) And I, and to me, I think that's the only information in the case. Mm -hmm. And then comes round time for court that week. They're like, Hey, well, I want you to look at this, 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 and, and it's all this extra data that they had this entire time, but they say, well, We just didn't have it in the budget to give this to you before. And I say, well, now it's a little bit too late unless you're getting a continuance. Mm -hmm. And even then, though, the prep is everything. A lot when it comes to court, right? We could do our job 100% perfect. If you're not asked the right questions about what you did, no one ever knows. Mm -hmm. Very true. And I find myself having to really pressure attorneys a lot of the times to spend the time to prep. Right. 
And I think that's the big frustration. Yeah, that, that certainly would be. Yeah. Um, what it, that's one of the things I find interesting about you and just what I know about you from, from being connected with you on LinkedIn is it seems like a lot of your cases do seem to go to court. Is that, does that, is that true or is that just the way it appears or? Oh yeah. A good deal of them do. But yeah. so there, there's two parts to that. There's a lot of cases that I tell the attorneys we need to go to court. Right. So a lot of times they're being offered plea deals mm-hmm. in, in a lot of cases, a lot of the defense cases and some of the deals are okay. But the problem is, is where I find that they're not being truthful or they haven't done their job correctly on one side and it becomes, hey, we pressed a button, it spit out this report, as everyone calls it, push button forensics at that point. Right. And here's what it shows. This is what we're charging based on. Take this to your client. And so here's a good example of that. And I don't like to talk about CCM cases a whole lot. So I'm just going to give this high level overview. Mm-hmm. But I recently had a case that involved an individual who they alleged possessed CSAM. And by the time I got done with my examination, not only could the drive that he had, by the way, it was an IDE drive. So think about that for a second. Mm -hmm. The the legacy technology that it takes to even connect that drive to a modern computer today. Absolutely. So, but it was on an IDE drive. And by the time I got done with the case, I was able to prove that the data was on the device when he bought it. Right. So the files predated his purchase of the device, but I went back and did the investigative work on that. I went and found that this drive he purchased used, where he purchased it from, the date of purchase, all of this to show that the times and dates on the files predated the date of purchase of the drive. And then I gave them the profile name of the person who actually place the data on the drive. Wow. But they didn't look at any of that information. They just said, here's images. Here's the person who had the drive. That's it. Yeah. You, you actually, uh, that's exactly the similar scenario that we dealt with last year where somebody had bought something off Craigslist. And yeah, not only did the um, material predate the purchase, but it was under a completely different user account. And yep. Um, it's, it's interesting because I'm not, I don't, I never like to be critical of police because I never know their resources or, or whatever the I case agree. may be, but it's funny when they go far enough and they go, aha, there's something here. And then that's it. They don't, in this case, they didn't verify anything or take any additional steps. They're just like, it's there. That's it. Put a bow on it and take it to court. And yeah, in that case, the, the charges were dropped after we got involved and, and submitted our report. They didn't even go to trial on it. They just dismissed the case. So really great results. Um, but yeah, it's funny just being charged with that kind of a crime alone can be so devastating to your uh, a reputation. And um, it's, it's insane. This, our client from last year, I don't think they could use an electronic device or the internet for three years or something like that. There was a, it was part of their terms of probation or, or um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, dr- dramatically impactful on their life. And so it was a good result for us and they don't always turn out that way, but yeah, sometimes there's an explanation that the person didn't do it. So yeah, I, I, I spend a lot of time in court also because I like it. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I like going to trial. Uh, and I don't know that a lot of examiners would probably come out and say that, but I do. I like educating juries. I like mm-hmm. educating the fact finder. 
I like educating the judge because it's important. Hugely you know, important. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I did a large case without saying the name, uh, but and it's probably out there somewhere. If you look me up and look on the internet, you'll find it, but I'm not going to speak to it too much. Mm-hmm. But I did a large case where I worked for the defense of someone from the UK in last fall. And if you go out and you look it up, you'll see, I, I don't like to talk about it because there's a sure. lot of people that want information about it right now, but it, it was really interesting when you dug into the information of what was being alleged and what could have actually possibly occurred based on the technology. Right. Right. And the allegation did not meet the technology at the time. Right. Right. And so again, I, I don't know. I just like court. I, I enjoy yeah. it. I try to get uh, cases. Of course you want to get the case dismissed before court, if at all possible. And, and I'm sure a lot of attorneys like to do that too. But mm-hmm. I think that it's important for these matters to go to court because that's the only way we get digital forensics on the record and have to have decisions made about case law. Agreed. Absolutely. You're, uh, I guess it's your police background or your military police background that, that has you, you, you've got a very keen awareness of, of legal principles, it seems. Would you agree with that? I, I think so. I, I, I try to at least. And I do as much research as possible too. Every case, every legal statute, you know, the difference is when I get a case in for uh, examination, I don't ask just for the digital media. I ask for the entire case file. Mm -hmm. I look at the entire amount of discovery that they have to look at the collection, to look at the charges, to look at the statements. Mm -hmm. Because... Uh, the same way I teach it, which is what I'm actually leaving to do uh, Thursday, I got a round of teaching going on for the government and then also at the National Forensics Academy at the University of Tennessee, um, is I try to teach it from the perspective of timelines. And I try to teach all of digital forensics from the perspective of a timeline. And when it comes to an investigation, testimonial evidence at this point should be able to be corroborated by the digital data that was generated during that time period. Right. So it's either going to show that what someone is saying is accurate, or you're going to see a hole somewhere in that story based on the digital data that's being generated. Because let's face it, almost nobody walks around without a smartphone today. And we know that it's generating digital data 24 hours a day. There's so there's just a gold mine of resources and, and information. It's yeah, it's shocking that it's not put to more use. But I like your approach in, in the sense that you look at the whole case and you see, you know, where can we verify something or where can we punch a big fat hole in something? And it's not about, you know, I can tell as it, for for you, it's not about advocating on getting somebody off a charge. It's about putting the truth to light and verifying things so that we're not left to un unverifiable or unconsistent inconsistent information being put forward. In- Oh, yeah. There's many cases where attorneys said, hey, we want you to look at this because the client says this and we want to have the client testify. And I'll look at the data and I'll call them back and say, I don't think that's a good idea. Here's why. And all you hear at that point is, thank you for the information. Send us an invoice and have a good day. We'll call you on the next one. Yeah. Right. Because that's the point. It's about making sure that everyone's just aware. Mm-hmm. aware of what the information is. My problem becomes is 
when we talk about mobile devices primarily, there's so many different approaches being used. Mm-hmm. And we know, and I, I use this test example of obviously I don't have gray key and we won't get into that situation. Uh, it's a great tool. I, I, I examine a lot of gray key images that when they're provided, I ask for them from, you know, in cases when they come about. But so even if you look at it's somewhat equivalent that we do have access to. So you look at a checkmate image Mm -hmm. uh, of a iPhone. I'm just going to use that as an example. Mm -hmm. So if you go and you look at a checkmate image and I have test phones where we've tested this of an iPhone seven, iPhone eight, iPhone 10, and you do the advanced logical, which we all know is just an Apple backup. Mm -hmm. And then you do that checkmate extraction, which is the full file system and the amount of difference in data that is being produced from those two examinations, it has to have you wonder as an examiner, why is the advanced logical being used when we know that even categories, if someone, even if there's a limited scope consent to say just chats or just pictures, Mm -hmm. we know that one type of exam is going to produce far more data than the other but yet they only use the limited resource versus the resource that could produce the most data. Right. And so the problem becomes is educating the legal system about this because once you do that and then they come to you and say, well, this is the extraction that was done in my client's case. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not the deepest level of extraction that could have been done. And if your client's telling you there's information that should be there, that's not, the only way to verify that is to go force the deeper level of extraction or have them turn over the actual evidence, which I've had done. I have actual evidence sitting in my evidence locker right now mm-hmm. from law enforcement because they said, well, here, you can do it yourself then. Gladly. <laughs> nice. Hey, um, in some of your cases, have you ever, I assume you've gone up against other practitioners, not only just police, but, but private companies as well, where you're, yeah. you're in a, you're, you have a differing, a, a professional opinion about what ought to have been done or what methods were used. How does that tend to go? I mean, does it, does it, does it get personal a lot of the times? I, I don't want it to be personal ever. No, that, but, that wasn't but I feel that people do take it that way. Right. Um, I, a good example of that, and I'm not using any names, but I had a recent case where that occurred and someone tried to say, Oh, he intentionally overlooked such and such date and time. And I said, I did not intentionally overlook it. Look at the facts of the case. Look Mm -hmm. at what we're talking about. And the date and time you're talking about was generated by the system, not by the user. So I did not overlook it. I disregarded it because it didn't matter because we were talking about the user's interactions, not the system's interactions. Right, right. And then what's interesting is after I filed the rebuttal, they dismissed the uh, evidence hearing they wanted to have about whether my, you know, opinion in my professional uh, examination that I was doing was going to get in. But I see it a lot. Like there's examiners and I don't understand it. I I don't know if it's the, you know, one arm on the, the, the ladder rung up from someone else or trying to get more clients from someone or what it may be. I, I don't like that approach. Mm-hmm. but there are examiners out there who do there, yeah, I've seen that. Who want to make it personal. 
Right. And I, right. I just disagree with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. For somebody to sort of say you intentionally didn't do something um, is kind of not, not very fair to say at all. Um, I, the way I approach, I always do everything in the forensic capacity as though somebody's going to question everything that I do anyway. Um, and then when I am in the uncomfortable position of having to critique somebody else or have expressed a different kind of opinion, I just, I just, the, my, my response is just to go very factual and just say, listen, here's, here's what the process is. Here's what I feel should have been done from a perspective. I don't even bring them into it. And it still gets personal at times, uh, shockingly so, you know. So, it's it's interesting. I think um, it, it really yeah. is. And and then the the hard part is is when you deal with someone that is not factually correct when they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And so, a good example of that, I had a case that involved a a, a dash camera mm-hmm. that had a, a micro SD card in it. Yeah, and they talked about it would be able to record X number of videos at a hundred megabytes each. And because there was 700 megabytes of free space, that means that the other side deleted seven videos because it would be full all the way until it overwrites. And I said, that's an interesting theory. And then I said, well, how much is on there? 15.3. And I it was a 16 gigabyte card. And I said, and so you're telling me that there's 16 gigabytes of data actually available on that card when it's brand new and formatted then. Mm-hmm. And, and, but the, no, the examiner goes, yes. Oh. And so I pulled out the package from the identical uh, card that was used and read word for word into the record what it says on the card about the available space and how much is actually available. And yeah, that just did not go well because they tried to say that it was intentionally deleted and it's not space that was ever even available. Yeah. And that's a problem. Like, you know, that's exactly what we're here not to do is to draw inferences that don't flow from a given set of facts. I mean, that's, that's the exact right. opposite of our job. It's uh, I'm frustrated to hear that actually. Um, when you go to court, like how much of it is, you know, when you're being set up to give expert evidence, how important is it to have, credentials that matter and are seen as sort of gold standards certifications never mind your your profound experience but just the credential aspect how important is that process um that's a tough question for me i i I say that because you know i've been afforded the opportunity to go to a lot of classes uh i have you know an undergrad and graduate degree in digital forensics i i do have a lot of that but I think that um, it's looked at for certifying you as an expert. But to be honest, what's the standard? You just have to know more than the other people in the room. Mm-hmm. That, that's uh, to exactly. be honest. Mm-hmm. And so I think the credentials are important for the fact of you having the knowledge, but not saying that, well, I'm a certified this or I'm a certified that. Uh, I don't even ever approach it that way. I hand them my, my CV, they read it. And most of the times at this point, at least it just gets stipulated. Like we don't even go through it. But before that, I would just explain that, you know, I, I've taken this training, I've taken this training, Uh, Mm -hmm. but like, for instance, a lot of people put all the letters after their, their name of every course or credential or any of that. I have a lot of those. You you don't see any of it in my title block. You would have a title about 
75 feet long. That's why. <laughs> well, and I just don't see the point in it, right? Like I know people, it's a thing for individuals to say, this is what I've accomplished. And, and I don't disagree with that. Everyone who accomplishes anything in this field, I think is great. Mm-hmm. I just don't see the need for it for that reason. Like if you want to know what I've done, ask me. I don't need to show it on a signature block or anywhere else on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And uh, yeah, your, I was looking at your um, website this morning in preparation for this whole thing. And, you know, your background is really impressive. You've, you've not only got a lot of experience for a long period of time, but you just, it's obvious that you consistently and regularly focus on updating your skills and keeping them sharp. Like it's really impressive, Patrick. And I try and I try to, I try to balance that out, but a Mm -hmm. lot of it's self-taught too. So, you know, I take things apart a lot. I buy a lot of test devices. Those are things that don't translate into your CV, but they sure do translate into when, if someone does want to challenge your CV Mm -hmm. and they want to ask you questions about SQLite databases, or how about the dip switches in a pine phone? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and people hear those things right now. A lot of people are like, a pine phone? What is a pine phone? You stumped me there. So, well, a pine, pine, I'll tell you, not a plug for them either, but a pine phone is a mobile device that runs with a Linux operating system. Okay. And it's on the market. It's very limitedly on the market, but it's out there now. It runs on a Linux operating system, but it also has hard switches in the back where you can turn on and off the Wi-Fi, turn on and off. Like actual bit switches. Huh. That's interesting. You, I have to check that out. But yet, if you go look at the mobile forensic software right now, you're not going to find PinePhone anywhere. No, not even. And so how do you learn how to extract data from that? Mm-hmm. You got to figure it out. And I figured out that you could image it just like a Linux computer. Very cool. That's part of the um, the interest that I think the, the best people in our field have is you just, you want to know how that works and you test it and you think about how you can do something and get away with it or how it wouldn't leave a track or, you know, I, I do that all the time. And, and people ask me a lot about, you know, what, what skills would you need to succeed in this career? And that's one of the things that I always point out is a keen interest. You, you just got to be curious about how things work and, and take it a step further and actually try and, um, you know, investigate little things that come to your mind or extract the data from weird devices. And mm. yeah, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Well, and I try and stay educated as much as possible. That's why I do all the teaching I do too. Right. So, you know, I teach attorneys, I teach law enforcement still uh, at the federal level. I teach law enforcement at the national forensics Academy. Mm-hmm. I do this because it's twofold. One, I get to educate them on the changes in digital data and how to best collect it and what to look for and uh, how to educate them on, you know, IOT and how it can affect their investigation, how it can affect their approach to a crime scene. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's a lot of things I teach across the classes of investigating sexual assault, investigating uh, domestic violence, investigating child abuse, mm-hmm. just overall crime scene examinations with digital evidence, how to locate devices, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm learning just as much. I'm learning one, what they don't know two, asking them what they're seeing in the field. It's like always having mm-hmm. all of this, this pool of individuals that I can pull data from. Yeah. Where yeah. to shift that focus, right? Where to pivot. Yeah. 
and, and focus attention so that we can provide back our service the best possible way. Beautiful, man. I love that. Um, let me ask you just on the topic of teaching. So a lot of students and people that want to enter the field do reach out to us. I'm sure it's the same with you. What advice do you give to people who want to go into the field, but don't know where to start in terms of training or, or knowledge or experience? So, yeah, that's another interesting question. So I do get a lot of those questions. What's the best degree program? What's the best school? What's the best certification? And a lot of times what I tell them to do is spend the time to do the research. First, mm -hmm. figure out which part of the field you are interested in. Is it incident response? Is mm -hmm. it network forensics? Is it you know, dead box forensics? Is it mobile forensics? I said, because if you try to learn it all at once, you will be overwhelmed and, and, and you will not be able to grasp the concept. I said, mm -hmm. you have to take it one part at a time. I said, so you, traditional methods are okay. Going to school, getting a degree, doing those things. And, but at the more it specializes, I feel some of the degree programs are falling behind. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're not keeping up with the way the technology changes. And so then I say, you know, of course you have SANS, which, but super expensive, right? Uh, for, yeah. for the average person to go mm -hmm. to SANS is almost not realistic based on the cost. Training's great. Yeah. But, but the cost is out there. So I tell them there's so many, especially in this past year, so many free resources. Mm -hmm. the, the Magnet Virtual Summit's going on right now, this month. Right now. Yeah. completely free resource. The amount of knowledge you can come out of that one month with of yeah. things you didn't know before is amazing. Sand gives you the DFIR summit in July, yeah. virtual now free another. Right. And so I do that with my undergrad and graduate students. Like I have classes that just picked up yesterday because I teach for Champlain college in Vermont mm -hmm. in the online uh, digital forensics program, undergrad and grad. But that's the first thing I do is I give them this list of resources and list of free training at the beginning and say, really? along with the course material, here's all these other avenues you can pursue mm -hmm. to learn about what digital forensics is, where the field is going. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you want to specialize in? Yeah. You know, that's interesting. You, you bring up a good point and you've done this so much in this interview. It's crazy. I think we're like separated at birth at some point. Yeah, probably. One of my frustrations with, um, with forensics firms that I see, uh, are the lack of specialty. There's so many specialties within our field alone. Let's stick to that. But I, I get frustrated when I see firms trying to be a cybersecurity firm and, and a forensics firm. And, you know, you have to be so extraordinarily large and have such a large team of specialists to offer mm -hmm. all of that. It's incredibly broad. And that's, that's one of my frustrations. So I like what you say about, you know, picking a specialty within our own domain, first of all, and learning your trade, because you don't want to be mediocre at a bunch of things. You, you need to be a specialist and very, very good at a very yeah, narrow and, and, and I've taken, yeah. And to be honest, I've taken a lot of network forensic classes and I know things are going in that direction. Everything's in the cloud, but you know what? Not my specialty. I like and, and I would resource people that I know who are specialists in that field if something came about, or I would just refer it to them. Right. I am a king of referrals. I, I've referred a lot of people for a lot of things, but I found that a lot of people have done the same in return. Absolutely. Especially within this field. Like there's, there's so little ego in our community. That's what I really like about it. People are like, 
hey, listen, I just want the client to be well served. So it's maybe not me and I'm going to pass it off to somebody else who can, who can help them. I love that. That's what I'm all about. And there's so many people in this field that are like that. And it's really a, a treat to be in it. So, yeah. Well, and I like, I like tools too. Right. But what I say about tools, and I know you didn't ask this question. But I'm just going to go down this road for a second. Please. I, I like tools so much that, I don't ever feel that any one examination of a device should be done with only one, mm -hmm. but that happens a lot. Right. And, and, but you know that tool a and tool B could give you something similar, but something very different at the same time from any given device. Mm -hmm. And so I feel that going out and researching tools going out, I mean, it, it's a 24, hour, seven day a week job, especially when you own the company, right? What yeah. is best for us to use uh, yeah. and have in our toolbox? Now, small companies, hard time to afford all everything, the, the, the everything, right. all of them. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm a firm believer and I do a lot of demo stuff, a lot of companies. I look at mm -hmm. a lot of different tools and the ones that are right fit for us, that's, you know, something I will you know, way into. Um, but I've seen every iteration of it. I, right. I've seen when, you know, guidance software was in case to open text and then mm -hmm. uh, magnet forensics. So interesting thing with them, you know, Canadian company, right? I've known JAD before it was ever called magnet forensics. Really? When it was just, yeah, it was called JAD software. Oh, really? And so, yeah. uh, I was using his tool. So IEF, which was the first tool that he yep. created. Um, I was using that tool in Afghanistan in 2011, 2012 timeframe. Cool. And it was free and it right. came and we had it on a floppy disk. at one point. <laughs> so that shows you the evolution in one decade where he is gone in the field of digital forensics from a law enforcement officer with this little cool tool that he developed to capture online data from mm -hmm. chat applications, other things to look at what it is today. Yeah. It's amazing. Wow. I didn't know that. That's a really cool story. Yeah. So every time we get together, we talk a little bit about it, but yeah, me and him go that far back to the point where it's amazing to watch the growth that occurred. Right. Just yeah, by be proud of. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. They're great. And now they're on the Canada Stock Exchange. I know. Yeah, they went public. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so that's great. what I mean. In one in one decade, that's where you know they land. Yeah, it's inspiring. It's uh it's really great to see. So yeah. Um, Patrick, I really enjoyed this uh this chat, man. Thanks for doing it again. Um, if that's if cool. people are listening to it or seeing this and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to contact you and yeah, probably through the website. It's uh, metadataforensics.com or look me up on LinkedIn and connect with me. Uh, we're on LinkedIn. I'm personally on LinkedIn. Right. Um, I answer a lot of questions on there. Uh, yeah, I would re definitely recommend connecting with you on LinkedIn. You're, you're pretty active, as active as you can be. And it's, uh, it's, it's awesome. And I love seeing your content. So thanks for doing all that all the time. It's great. A question for you. Yeah, shoot. Real quick, as we're on our way out, uh, you going to techno in June? Um, you you stumped me again. Now, what is Sorry. techno? So the 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 techno security conference in Myrtle Beach, 
Uh, it's all digital forensics release the first week or second week of June. I don't think it's in the cards um, this year because I don't think I'll be traveling. But um, okay. yeah, if I was a U.S. resident, I'm sure I would be. That sounds really cool. Now that you mentioned, I think I've heard of it tangentially. But uh, yeah, one day when things get back to normal, I'll, I'll definitely. I'll, yeah, I'll I hope to run into you at some point. One of the conferences or somewhere we gotta we gotta get together. I I actually yeah, have to meet not. my you know lost brother. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, hundred percent, man. That'd be great. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks again, man. Let's uh, let's do that in the future. Something to look forward to. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right, Patrick. You take. Despite all the news about data breaches, ransomware attacks, email fraud, and insider threats, most businesses don't have a plan when it comes to a cyber attack. In fact, most businesses don't know who to call when the worst happens. That costs them valuable time and a lot of money. Get a plan today. Go to dfiforensics.ca and learn about our custom-built incident response plans. We'll prepare a document that will guide your organization through every step of a data breach. Learn more today.